My name is John O'Brien. I'm the Chief Executive of Catholics for Choice. And it gives me great pleasure today to open this session. We're joined by Anne Ferrady. Anne Ferrady is the um, Chief Executive of the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, the largest provider of abortions in the UK. And we're here on the occasion of Anne's new book, The Moral Case for Abortion. In it, Anne sets out the ethical arguments for a woman's right to choose, drawing on traditions of sociological thinking and moral philosophy. It's a departure in some ways from the usual pro-choice argument, which sometimes relies on health arguments um, far more than arguments around a moral sphere or rights arguments. So um, it's challenging, I think, both for those people who would be um, <coughs> against abortion and the arguments she used. But also, I think it's a challenging argument for those people who are pro-choice and I think invites um, the audience to think differently um, and to argue differently um, in relation to a woman's right to choose. I'm also um, very pleased to introduce uh, Mary Kenny. Mary is an Irish author, broadcaster, playwright and journalist, um, a frequent columnist with the um, Irish Independent newspaper. And she's also a bit of an icon, <laughs> having um, uh, been a founder member of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement way back in the day. My mom was very pleased that I was on a panel with Mary <laughs> Kenny. She told me to behave Not myself. <laughs> and we're also joined by Dr. Ellie Lee a reader in social policy at the University of Kent, uh, Canterbury, and director of the Centre for uh, Parenting uh, Culture Studies. Okay, so we're going to start off with um, Anne, who's going to lay out her argument for about 20 minutes or so, and then we're going to um, have a response from Mary and from a reflection from Ellie, and then as soon as possible, <coughs> I want to open it up to you, um, the audience, to get involved both with your own thoughts and your own questions for any of the panellists. So without any further ado, Anne. Thank you very much, John. And um, I'm really pleased to be here at uh, one of the opening sessions. So I wanted to really use this session to explain why I felt that this was a book that needed to be written. And in some ways, it, it's, it took me a long time to write. I've been working in the area of reproductive health, providing abortions, first of all, uh, involved in <coughs> advocacy, but secondly, in service provision for really about the last 15 years. And I suppose you could say that this has been taking about 15 years for me to produce. Its gestation has been really long. And the reason for that is because right the way from the time I started working in this area, I found that I was involved in a number of challenging discussions because however much sometimes we like to present it as being an area of healthcare just like any other, um, and I myself will often talk about the need for us to normalise abortion and make it part of, of, of health care like other procedures. While it is that clinically, it kind of isn't that in the way that people understand it and feel about it. And it always feels in some ways as though 
abortion plays out on two different levels. There's the level for the woman who has an unwanted pregnancy, the personal experience of it, for whom it's a problem that has occurred, that she needs a very simple, straightforward and safe medical resolution to, one that's legal in, in this country. But on the other hand, it remains as a kind of political moral issue to policymakers who regard it as being very controversial, something that they still don't really feel able to touch. And one of the things that I've always found <laughs> slightly disconcerting is that the moral and the political arguments are frequently raised by those who think what I'm doing is wrong. And they'll articulate them by saying very often that abortions murder, abortions taking a human life, abortions uh, has the effect of coarsening society. It's an anti-human response. It's something that um, is consumerist. And the response by a lot of my colleagues traditionally has tended to be okay you can have those views, but the problem is, is that if we want to live in the kind of modern society that we do, where women have the right to work and are expected to participate in education and politics and so on, abortion is something that you can't really do without. So the discourse from people who oppose abortion has tended to be quite a moral and political one. The discourse from those people who provide abortion is kind of um, apologetic and it's best summed up perhaps by people who will say um, that abortion should be, in an ideal world, abortion should be safe, legal and rare, uh, which is something that we hear quite often. Even from those people who work in my field, the argument will be that <coughs> abortion should be prevented and that the best methods of family planning are those that are associated with the lowest risk of abortion, which is why there's a huge impulse at the moment to get everyone, every woman who moves and is sexually active <laughs> fitted with a long-acting reversible contraceptive because that's the most effective way of not requiring an abortion if you don't want to be pregnant. So abortion is always seen as this thing which is somehow implicitly bad. And you kind of have to think about, well, why that is, because it is perfectly safe. Well, it's as safe as any other method of birth control. And I would argue that um, it is, in fact, regarded by people as a method of birth control. It's a way that we resolve a situation when we haven't wanted to become pregnant and yet we find ourselves pregnant, or a situation where maybe we have become pregnant, but we no longer feel that we're in a situation where we want a birth of a child to result from that pregnancy. And so there's a kind of thing about the pragmatism that I don't really think holds as a good argument uh, against that kind of moral impetus, because if you think about particularly the argument that well, you know, women need to be free of children uh, in modern society to be able to <coughs> live their lives and go out to work and do all of that kind of stuff. That could be 
better dealt with in lots of ways. It could be better dealt with by certain <coughs> social reforms. I mean, obviously, women still become pregnant and they have to kind of live with that. But, you know, better childcare and so on would help that. And the arguments against abortion will quite often say, you know, well, why don't you have better childcare? Why don't we have better maternity provision? All of that stuff would kind of really help. And in a way, it would. And then you can look at it from another point of view, which is that you could say, you know, well, actually, women who want to work and be active in education and politics might be affected by other things that hold them back. I tell you, caring for elderly parents, you know, is no joke. And yet nobody says, oh, well, to allow women to remain at work and so on, we should allow them to dispose of their elderly parents. You know, they are see simply seen as being lives that you would never, ever, ever compromise. So there's a question there I don't think that we can avoid about what it is about abortion, what it is about ending a life, a human life, when it's in the womb, that makes it permissible and that actually makes it not a wrong thing to do and that, to my mind, uh, makes the ability for women to make the decision for themselves whether or not they decide to have the child or whether they decide to end the pregnancy and abortion, uh, that, that is an incredibly valuable thing to do. So over many years, I've really tried to think through and discuss with people about what kind of value we do give to the human embryo and how we look at it and how we look at that life. And, and in the book, I think I probably have surprised some people because I think I've probably gone further than a lot of my colleagues would in giving a value and a status to the, to, to, to the human embryo. One of the things that makes the argument for abortion easier is if you can somehow deny the, the embryo has got any human qualities. And I don't think that's a particularly helpful way to look at it. I really do think that's a, a little bit of putting ourselves in denial. I do think that there, are, so, that there is something that is pretty special about um, the start of an individual, the biological start of an individual. Um, I think that clearly when a woman is pregnant, the embryo is human in the sense that it has human DNA. Um, it's not a gerbil, it's not a horse, it's not a puppy. It's clearly human, so it's pretty stupid to deny that. And I would also argue, although there are biologists and scientists among you who will say that this is a wrong point for me to make, but I think that there is something that is distinct and unique from when the process of fertilisation has been completed, in that the embryo is not just part of the woman, it has the DNA, combines the DNA of the guy whose sperm, you know, uh, created it, and the egg, it's sort of different in some ways. And, and I think it's a pretty awesome thing. I'm not going to get into miracles of life. John's the Catholic. I'm not. I don't have any religious faith. But Ronald Dworkin, in his 
book. Um, he's written quite a lot on kind of atheist views of looking at life. And he sort of says how, you know, we can look at these wonders of nature and step back with a sense of cosmic awe when we look at these great things. We don't have to see them as being God-created. We can have a sense of cosmic awe. And I think I look at the embryo with a sense of cosmic awe. And one of the reasons why I look at the embryo with a sense of cosmic awe is because of what that, what that division of cells can become. And I think that is the crucial thing for me, is that what I look at when I give value to the embryo is that I value the embryo because of its, because of its status as homo sapiens, as being part of, our, part of our kind in one sense. But that does not mean that I think that it has the status and the value of the persons that we become. And actually, my argument in the book is that it started off really in some senses as being an argument about abortion, but I actually found that I was becoming more and more drawn into an argument about what we are as humans and what we value as humans. And what it really made me think is how shallow people who say, well, human life and our humanity starts with a beating heart in the womb and that it is reducible to our species membership. What a shallow notion of humanity and human life those people really have. You know, because I honestly think that we are more than our flesh and bones and we are more than a beating heart. And again, it makes it sound as though I'm going slightly over. Am I doing a turn here? You know, I'm suddenly going to announce that I have found a faith or something that isn't going to happen. But what I'm going to say is that what I think is more than our flesh and bones and more than our humanity is in fact something that we have that no other kind of being on this planet, I believe, have. And that is... Uh, our, our ability to self-identify, our ability to be ourselves, our ability to know, our ability to have a sense of what the world is around us. And I think that it is that sense of our knowingness that actually makes us treat each other as significantly different from other forms of life, from other animals on this particular planet. The specialness that it is what we know, that we know that we are alive, that we have a sense of ourselves, that we have <coughs> a sense of what we want, what we want to be, what our future can be, what our past has been, the people, how we fit in, to the world around us. I'm not talking about an awareness at a particularly high philosophical sense. We don't all have to be Bertrand Russells. But the point is, is that we know what we want. You knew when you set out this morning that you wanted to come to this meeting because of what you knew 
you wanted out of it. And it is because we have a sense of ourselves and where we are in this world and what we are that actually makes us fear death so much and makes us horrified of the prospect of death because effectively we are in a position where we are writing our biography. We make ourselves through the choices that we, that, that, that we are faced with and how life has a particular meaning. And so death for us is not just the end of a beating heart. It's not just the stopping of a beating heart. Death for us is the end of our life in a sense that is way more profound than it is in a biological sense because we're conscious, we're aware of life, and we have a sense of death. And we fear death because it undermines our sense of purpose and it thwarts our destiny. That's what the end of life means for us. When we talk about the fetus in the womb, we're talking about something that does not even know that it is alive. It is a life that's human in the biological sense, but it has no sense that it is even alive. And so for me, I don't think that we can equate that end of life in the way that we can equate the end of life for one of us. For us, I think what is built upon this is that because we are what we are and because we know, we accord ourselves as a society, we accord individuals in our society with two particular very, very important rights, which nobody would dispute that women have before they're pregnant. And those are the sense that our bodies are our own, our sense of the expression that's sometimes used is our right to bodily integrity. What that means is that we exist as individuals, as people, our bodies are our own, and no one can use them for another means. We are not a means to somebody else's end. We are, we are and have the right to determine <coughs> our future. And that's actually what stands between utilitarian decisions that use us. That's what stands between somebody deciding that Anne Faraday, if you took her and you sacrificed her life, you could save six people's lives from the organs that could be donated. The idea that our bodies cannot just be used for something else, for the greater good. And that sense that our bodies are our own is built into the rule of law. It's built into a sense of habeas corpus that our bodies are our own. And that's what we have um, because we know. And it's a status that's particularly given to us. When people claim that a woman has to suspend the right of her body being her own because she needs to continue a pregnancy for the sake of the fetus, what we're effectively doing is granting to the fetus a status and value that's higher in terms of preserving its life through its compromise on a woman's bodily integrity than that that we give to other born human beings. And I think that that's utterly wrong. The other personal freedom that we have 
is the freedom to use our knowledge, our knowingness, our moral capacity to make decisions, to make moral intimate decisions for ourselves, to follow our conscience, as long as it doesn't take away the freedom of others. And so basically what I'm arguing here is that the moral discussion about abortion traditionally has always rested <coughs> on the moral status of the fetus and the life of the fetus. And what I'm saying is that while I value the biological life of the fetus, I value something that is far more. And that is the life and the integrity of the woman because her life is something that is utterly different and that's why I privilege her choice because through her choices she makes what matters about our human life and that is our ability to create our biography to determine ourselves, our agency and not simply our biology. I'll end it there. Thank you very much. Mary? Thank you. I'm going to stand up because I feel more comfortable standing up. Thank you. Just on for one point of information, Ernst began by talking about the embryo and went on to talk about the fetus. Just on the point of information, the embryo is the conceptus up to eight weeks. And therefore it's very small, of course, in very early stages of, 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 of human development. And it's a fetus or an unborn after that. You can use whichever word you like you like fetus is just the Latin for unborn. But it is very interesting that most newspapers, even the Guardian, usually chooses to use the word unborn because it seems more humane and human. Um, but I think very few abortions are actually carried out on embryos because it's actually a bit too early. Um, Anne said that we all knew why we wanted to be here today. I don't want to be here today at all. I hate being here today. Absolutely ghastly. I'm trekking up from the channel ports at my own expense, if you don't mind. Oh, to be Shami Chakrabarti, who receives £5,000 for every speech she makes. Oh, where did I go wrong? Uh, 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 um, but but uh, so so, so I, I don't want to be here. Um, I can think of a lot better things to do on a Saturday. However, I feel the need to choose to be here because I greatly admire, respect, and honour the Institute of Ideas for upholding freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And that is very, very important in our world today where conformity and, and, and prevailing orthodoxies often allow of no challenges whatsoever. And I think this is what the, the, the battle of ideas is about. And I really thank the Institute of Ideas for doing that. It may be the only forum today in which one can have a free discussion of ideas. We know perfectly well that many of the university debating societies are merely uh, 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 are extremely conformist and will uh, no platform people whose, whose ideas they don't like. So let's welcome freedom of expression and freedom of thought and information. Now, shall I begin with a joke? There aren't an awful lot of jokes about abortion, uh, uh, actually. The only one I know of comes from that mistress of wit, Dorothy Parker, a wonderful woman. But Dottie Parker was a very bad chooser of men, not the first and not the last. 
Uh, and uh, Wendy Cope has written wittily about that. But uh, uh, she had an affair with a very handsome cad when she was in her late 20s. And unfortunately, uh, she, she, for her, she became pregnant and she had an abortion. This was in New York. It was legal, actually, at the time. Um, and uh, she quipped as she had that abortion, trust me to put all my eggs in one bastard. <laughs> <laughs> actually, she'd suffered grief from that abortion, and though afterwards she, was, uh, she, she made a suicide attempt. But one has to admire the valour of, uh, of, of her way of dealing with it. Now, it's often said that abortion is a difficult subject, <clears throat> and indeed it is, and one of the reasons it's a difficult subject is that the membrane between not wanting a pregnancy, not wanting a child, and the arousal of the maternal instinct can be very thin. And that is something we have to recognize, and I think Anne Furedi has recognized. Uh, a young woman said to me, a, few, a woman can, uh, uh, can, can, can not want a pregnancy and not want a child, and yet some part of her, perhaps that maternal instinct is, is touched. A young woman said to me a few years ago, I'm booked in for a termination of pregnancy next week, but I'm giving up cigarettes so as not to harm the baby in the meantime. And that might sound like a contradiction, but actually, from here was speaking, the spontaneous expression of the maternal instinct. She still wanted to protect that life within her. And that, there's a very good book uh, written some years ago by an American feminist called Linda Bird Frank called The Ambivalence of Abortion. And I think that the message is in the title, actually. Now, <clears throat> Anne Furedi has written a very well-resourced book and, and it, in many ways, very honest. Actually, she does make a, a very good joke now that I think about it <laughs> in the book. She's, Anne observes that the main failure of condoms is the failure to take it out of the packet at the time, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the fact that it's not used. Um, but I think she could have benefited, actually, from looking a little bit more closely at the Christian and, indeed, Jewish uh, uh, idea of motive. Now, the difference, as you will know, between Christian ethics and utilitarian ethics is that Christian ethics looks at motive. What is the reason for why somebody does something? I would want... The difference between murder and killing or homicide or manslaughter, um, you would never use the word murder on, 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 unless it was proved that somebody had a malign intent and it was proved in a court of law. That's the notion of motive. Uh, John Hapgood, who was previously the <coughs> Anglican Archbishop of York, sp has spoken very interestingly about this, about how you might have a very moral motive for an abortion. Indeed, you might want to spare somebody's suffering, for example. You might f want to, uh, you might feel that you honestly can't look after the children you already have. Or you might, uh, 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 he did, he asked this, I think, terribly uh, serious question. If, you, if your child is disabled, are you entitled to bring somebody into the world to suffer? I don't know what the answer of that to that is, but I do think that that is a very interesting area to look at in terms of the moral question on abortion. What is the motive uh, uh, of why anybody does anything? Because morality, for, for Judeo-Christian morality, is deeply linked to motive. 
And as, as Anne Furedi says, the moral case for abortion is very seldom made. I mean, it's usually the pragmatic case, the legal case, and, and, and the political case. And I would say over the course of the last, maybe since the Second World War, actually, those who are pro-abortion advocates, pro-choice, if you wish, I think people should be called whatever they want to be called, um, uh, they have won legal battle after legal battle after legal battle, beginning with the Swedes in the 1940s who, who started to practice uh, a, a form of legal abortion. Um, British abortion law was terrifically helped. I mean, I think Northern Ireland and even maybe the Republic of Ireland, the attitudes there are softening almost largely because of the tremendous focus on something called fatal fetal syndrome, that is to say, uh, where a woman is carrying a child which cannot survive. So disability and handicap is always a tremendous help to the abortion cause because people are horrified at the idea of bearing uh, a disabled children child. We know that in Denmark and in Iceland, 100% of Down syndrome children are now terminated before birth because of the horror of having a disabled person. Uh, the British Abortion Act of 1967 was terrifically helped by thalidomide, the thalidomide scandal, which, in which you know babies were born with our arms and legs. Uh, and, and, I mean, the word, it's fascinating to go back over those cuttings and see the horror with which people discussed, imagine bearing a monster. That was the kind of language that was used, not in the House of Commons and elsewhere as well. And now, isn't it interesting to see on the Guardian website how much they revere the statue of Alison Lapper, who's a thalidomide mother, and she was on the fourth plinth on Intrafalgar Square. So they're now honouring a woman who was born a thalidomide person and who has now ha had a child herself. And that, to me, is fascinating because it's the way in which nothing is ever seen in retrospect the way it is seen at the time. Everything changes with the perspective of history and with the onward march of technology. So I think that um, the pro-choice or the pro-abortion advocates, they've won largely the political, <coughs> the legal, and the medical, although Anne Furedi makes the point she'd like to take this further and take the whole issue out of the medical sphere. So be it, maybe that will also happen. But um, they have not won the hearts and minds. And that is the most, uh, 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 they have the hard power. We have the soft power, I think. Anne Furedi says herself in her own book, that she laments that abortion is still seen as a stigma. She says abortion seems to have no champions. And that indeed is true, actually, in a way. It's a true observation. If you go into a greetings cards shop, there's an amazing number of greetings cards now available. Congratulations, happy stepmother. Congratulations on being, you know, on passing your driving test. Oh, lovely teacher, I love being. There's a wonderful array of choices. But Hallmark has not yet chosen to issue a card saying, congratulations, you've had an abortion. And I suggest it probably never will. Uh, it, it's very interesting how the whole subject is very cloaked in euphemism. Uh, uh, and people will go to a, tr a quite strong length to use euphemisms. Uh, planned Parenthood, you would think it was 
a sort of nursery school, uh, uh, or, or, or even, even the British uh, Pregnancy Advisory Service doesn't have abortion in the title. Uh, a, a doctor will sit next to you at dinner and say, I'm in reproductive medicine. He'll seldom say, I'm an abortionist. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, because of the way in which there's always the desire to, uh, uh, to, to, to cloak the uh, thing. I think that the laurel goes to the French who, who describe abortion as IVG, interruption volontaire de, de grossesse, voluntary interruption of pregnancy. We're not terminating it, we're just interrupting it. <laughs> I've got a red card now, so I better move on. But I do think it's very interesting that they d didn't choose to make a movie called Bridget Jones's Abortion. They'd made one called Bridget Jones's Baby. And uh, 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 that's a very, very popular movie. And the star of that movie is actually the ultrasound scanner. Never, by the way, is Bridget Jones, she's 43, she, she, she conceived uh, uh, her child uh, uh, from a drunken shag with two different men. She doesn't know who the father is. Uh, she doesn't want a child, but never is the word abortion even actually mentioned to her. Neither is even the euphemism of choice. We move very quickly from her getting a positive result to the ultrasound scanner. You know, sometimes people uh, um, uh, stand out, uh, sometimes abortion advocates have, have, have a, a, a saying, keep your rosaries off our ovaries. It's not the rosaries, it's the ultrasound scanner that is, in fact, the real uh, 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 threat to abortion advocacy, because it's the ultrasound scanner which indeed shows that this is a human life. And we see this, the movie makes a great deal of this about the little baby wa waving back and so on. So I don't think they're ever going to make a movie called uh, 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 Bridget Jones's Abortion. And so I think, I, I, I think this, is, this is the situation that they have, that you have, or those of pro-choice, pro pro-abortion advocates, uh, have the hard power but we have the soft power. We have the power of knowing that this is a human life and that it appeals to people, to women particularly because that maternal instinct is there and that maternal instinct will be stirred by the image of a baby. I, uh, I repose my evidence not on faith but on biological science and, on the f and, and I believe in the future of biological science. I believe we will have many more wonderful inventions uh, 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 to empower women, to help women to uh, uh, manage and control their, their, their uh, fertility. We, there's a woman in Denmark who's, who's been working on algorithms which is on, on natural fertility control. We may even have fetal transplants. Why not? A woman may be asked, do you wish to terminate this pregnancy or would you like to donate it? Many, many women are extremely altruistic and would certainly do so. Women often sacrifice, indeed they choose to sacrifice their lives uh, or their health for their, the, the, the sake of their child. And that is often an empowering thing. Don't disparage the maternal instinct. It makes women strong. It has actually uh, empowered women to being matriarchs through the ages. And it is on this that I repose my, uh, uh, my own commitment to the unborn. It is not an opposition to women's power, but it's in strength to women's power. I would say that, uh, 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 to, 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 to finish, 
that being pro-life is being progressive because it is affirming life. It is answering Hamlet's question, to be or not to be. And he answers that in spite of the hazards of life, that we should choose the affirmative to go forward, to experience the rapture of life and to experience the empowerment and the future. And on this I rest my case, not on any uh, 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 um, uh, thin idea of, that, of, of, of the morality of uh, repressing women, but on the, on the whole idea that women are often empowered by that maternal instinct which so often drives the champion, uh, drives the support of the unborn. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dr. Lee. Thanks. I don't know whether to spend my time arguing with Mary now or talking about Anne's book. Just one point in response to Mary um, on the question of disability and abortion for fetal anomaly. I couldn't disagree with you more on the idea that what is influencing women who make this decision, but also medical people and providers who interact with those women. Um, the idea that what's going on is horror um, and what everybody's influenced by is horror um, at disability um, and at the prospect of caring for a child with disability. Uh, sorry, Ellie, I didn't say that. I said that as the way it was okay. reported in, in can, 1967. Can I just yeah. so say my bit? me, please. Okay, well, all right, fair dues. There were some people around in 1967 um, and in the run-up to the passing of the 67 Act um, who talked about thalidomide um, and issues to do with uh, the effects of thalidomide with horror. To suggest that that has any relevance to uh, the situation today um, and what happens when a woman finds out during her pregnancy um, that the pregnancy is affected um, and then has to go through a particular process of decision-making in consultation with medical professionals. I think it's really wrong to suggest that what's going on there is some unthinking, um, reactive view of disabled people and what they're like. Uh, the issues are much, much more personal um, and much more specific um, to the woman concerned and her life and situation. And maybe that's, that's one area of this whole, whole thing that people might want to discuss. What I wanted to do, though, um, substantively, was to make some comments about Anne's book, which I think is a really striking book. Um, and if people haven't had it and read it, um, I would really recommend that you do. Um, it's a very unusual contribution to this discussion. I've been reading stuff about abortion um, since I started university, so that was longer ago than I care to remember. And this is a very distinct contribution. As Anne suggested in her introduction, there's basically two areas of moral debate or moral concern that are considered in it. One is to do with the status of the embryo, unborn, whatever. Fetus. Um, fetus, um, <laughs> and the thinking about the unborn um, and how we think about that uh, morally. The other is to do with the woman and how we think about the woman um, in moral terms and the question of autonomy. And what I'm going to do is to park the first part of it because I'm sure people have got plenty to say on that and just focus my comments on... Um, some of the issues that the book raised for me about the issues of autonomy um, and decision-making on the part of pregnant women. 
One of the things that is really, really different about this book, and I've never really seen it done, or certainly not in this particular way in anything I've ever read, is the situation of the moral question of autonomy um, and women's decision-making in abortion in a much wider framework of moral thinking about autonomy. So in the book, what Anne does is to situate that question in relation to Kant and the 18th century Enlightenment, following through into Mill, uh, J.S. Mill and his discussion of liberty, and then into Jean-Paul Sartre and the discussion of existentialism um, and questions of freedom and the confrontation of the individual with the question of freedom and the question of choice. Um, so there are some really big ideas, um, huge traditions of um, thought and thinking uh, brought to bear um, on the question of, of abortion. And I think it's incredibly valuable that Anne did this and does really force you to think a lot and in a different way about what's at stake. And it raised for me three questions, which are the ones that I wanted to pose. I don't know whether we're going to be able to discuss all of them. The first is the question of, and I think it, it does relate to one point that, that Mary raised about ambiguity um, and ambivalence, which is the question of rationality and reason, um, if you go from this, this starting point and this point of departure um, in the Enlightenment and Mill and so on. So at one point in your book, you argue, Anne, that it doesn't matter how much rationality and reason a woman applies to her decision. Um, so you say in many ways that's irrelevant. And you say that even denial of having to make that decision yourself and ending up it being influenced by others or made by other people is a decision of sort. So in a way, your presentation um, of uh, reason sets the bar, I don't know whether low, or in a, in a very kind of ordinary sort of way. Um, simply the fact that you are making any sort of decision is enough. Now, that strikes me as being fairly unlike Kant and Mill and Sartre, who in many ways were... Um, Men. That, that's one thing they were, but that's not the most important thing. What they were were people who were trying to persuade others, make very forthright arguments. So you quote Mill in your book, who says, He who chooses his plan for himself employs all his faculties. He must use observation to see, reasoning and judgment to foresee, activity to gather materials for decision, discrimination to decide. So these people were setting the bar very high. That's what they were trying to do. Um, and I was just curious about that and, it, and, and that relation that you drew and, and how you're thinking about that. The second area is feminism, which is one of the most interesting things about this book, is how far you go in placing yourself up against feminism on the basis of your emphasis on this kind of um, liberal interpretation of autonomy and the significance of the individual, which, as you point out quite rightly, is at odds with um, and, in fact, arguably antithetical to at least some versions of feminism. Mm. And you draw that out very overtly where you discuss Catherine McKinnon specifically, but also some other feminist thinkers, and more <coughs> contemporarily you counterpose that thinking um, to that which you see at work in the movement for reproductive justice, um, which obviously for those of us who are active in the world of campaigning for abortion um, is a very important part of the picture now. So then that again was something I wanted to discuss about what you, your thoughts on that, because obviously for most people, 
Being for women being able to have abortions, being for choice, is so allied with feminism. It's seen as a feminist thing. Yet you're saying, well, actually, that's not really true. I think that there are parts of feminism um, which are not actually in line with choice um, and which actually, even further than that, are almost like the opposite of it. Um, and you go, go that far in terms of your account of, of some of the feminist dismissal of autonomy, which, of course, is true. I mean, Catherine McKinnon does not like autonomy. She doesn't believe it's a possibility um, because she believes patriarchy makes autonomy impossible. Um, so from that version of feminist thinking, you cannot be an autonomous <coughs> woman, a choice-making woman. That's true. Um, but I've never seen that confrontation drawn out quite so overtly, overtly. The third issue is how far your arguments about autonomy are specific to a woman's decision to end a pregnancy. That's, in, in, so how far are they specific to abortion and the abortion choice? And the thing that got me thinking about this is that one thing that you've argued for as long as I've known you and for as long as I've heard you talk about this issue is to situate time. a long time <laughs> since I was... I met Anne when I was 18, involved in a campaigning for... Uh, women's abortion rights then, so it goes back a long way, this discussion. One of the things that you've always argued is that abortion sits on a continuum. You say it's part of family planning. There are various ways in which we can plan our families, and you pose abortion as part of a continuum with contraception. If not a version of it, you often say it's what women do when contraception fails or pe people fail to use it. So it's an extension. And this made me wonder whether you think that the arguments that you mobilise in the book about autonomy apply equally to contraception. So is that the same sort of moral question? Or is this a qualitatively different one? Is there something very specific that we're talking about here because what the woman is doing is choosing to end a pregnancy uh, rather than, than to prevent a conception? Um, and how far is that um, relevant um, to the case you're making? Okay, okay, that's it. Thank you very much, Ali. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm hoping, I'd like to go to the audience now, but I'm hoping you can incorporate maybe some of, some of Ellie's questions into the answers, and maybe the audience will have similar questions, or indeed at the end we'll give you a moment to come back. But if I can open it up to the audience now, if you raise your hand, please, this gentleman here. First of all, I'm going to apologise because I'm going to follow in the long tradition of Kant, Mill and Sartre in being a man. Um, but uh, <laughs> I think there is a, a discussion actually to be had uh, about how we feel about men making statements about abortion. That's probably a, a side issue. Um, what I'd really like to, to uh, ask about is... Um, a lot of the discussion that we've had is focused on sort of women's um, rights to their own bodies, their autonomy, their freedom to make moral decisions. It was something that um, Anne talked about um, quite a lot. But it's always talked about in the context of what happens after a woman becomes pregnant. And what I'd like to do is get your views on what, how those things relate to the situation before a woman's got pregnant. Because women have the right to choose what they do with their own bodies, who they sleep with. I mean, I'm going to put aside the issues of kind of force and yeah. we'll leave that to one side for the moment. But um, who they sleep with, whether they use contraception and all those things. And I just wonder whether um, we feel, uh, the panel feel, that there should be any responsibilities um, and whether there should be any consequences that women should face for exercising their rights to their own bodies um, and, and to have their, their freedom. 
and whether you could say, well, actually, um, abortion perhaps isn't a moral thing because in exercising their freedom, um, a woman makes a choice and she becomes pregnant and that pregnancy is the responsibility of her free moral choice. Great, great question. I think, we're, I think I'd like to take that question across the panel, if you don't mind. Mm. Well, Brief, briefly, Anne. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's, it's interesting because I think it actually ties very well into the last question that Ellie yeah. asked. Yeah. First of all, as regards women's autonomy and their ability to make choices, yes, I do think it completely stretches across. And I don't actually differentiate from that point of view <coughs> abortion from other methods of birth control. I can quite understand, for example, why a woman might make a, a very rational and sensible choice, I would say sensible choice, to um, decide to use a method of contraception that was perhaps less effective at preventing the pregnancy in the knowledge that she has the backup of abortion available to her. A woman, for example, if she has sex very infrequently um, or you know, she's of a particular age, may decide, well, actually, I'm not going to use anything at the time of sex. I'll use the morning after pill, perhaps, because I don't really want to have an abortion. But if the morning after pill fails, because it's not so effective, I'll have an abortion as a backup. I think, you know, women do that. I think it's a completely reasonable thing for them to do. However, from the point of view of a woman's autonomy and her ability to make her own choice about it. However, the reason why I think that you need to introduce something separate when it comes into abortion is because, um, for me, there is something different about ending something living. that is living. Good word. You know, something that is living and something that would emerge and develop into a human being. And I know that even if women do not individually feel that way themselves, very many other people do feel that about them. So I do think I want to have a discussion about, in, in my mind about why abortion is legitimate, both from the point of view of a woman's individual decision, but it's also, I think, legitimate from the point of view of the value of rights that we give to humans in society. Okay, Mary. Yeah, there's a terrifically good book by Christian Luker called um, Abortion and the Decision Not to Contracept, in which he actually followed cases mm. where people deliberately, if you like, um, expose themselves to pregnancy. And there were a whole number of reasons. Fertility testing is one of the, the big ones she noticed. I think Anne could uh, actually have profitably also discussed in her book the role of alcohol it's, uh, uh, in, in accidental pregnancies. Uh, and this is an area which just hasn't been researched at all. And in fact, it is uh, exactly uh, illuminated in Bridget Jones's baby. And she will have a lot of experience of uh, people saying, listen, I'm sorry, I just got pissed and, you know, this is mm. what happened. And, of course, the, once you bring alcohol into, a, into, a, into the picture, you are giving away your autonomy. Nothing gives away your autonomy more than six gin and tonics, actually. Um, about Sartre, it's, it's fascinating, and indeed Anne does mention Sartre, and he is the begetter of the idea of autonomy, which in many other contexts I... 
I do support. But as you grow older, you begin to see the nuances of, because your independence begins to ebb and uh, you begin to see that autonomy isn't always everything it's cracked up to be, that it's more complicated uh, than, I mean, Germaine Greer has talked about that herself. She said, if we had rights over our bodies, we would have the right not to get cancer. Um, uh, Mary, and, you... and, and Sartre himself ended up as a very babyish old man, completely vulnerable to the manipulations of, of, of a young Maoist and, and, and looked after by Simone de Beauvoir. And so he was, at the end of his life, the antithesis of an idea of an autonomy. But that's life. That's the way things pan out. La vie s'arrange, mais autrement. Life works out, but not as you plan it. Can I ask you a follow-up question to that, Mary? You talk about life in the, in the, in the uterus. Um, it's life, Mary, but is it life uh, but not as we know it? Because like, 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 this is the difference between what Anne, ar Anne argues, that it's perfectly legitimate to end life. I think even, Anne, you use the term killing. So it's perfectly legitimate to kill that life that's in the uterus because it's not yet reached that level of import that a a fully developed, born human person has. Mary, so while you have respect for life, is it a respect for life that would deny the woman the autonomy and freedom of conscience that she needs? I would always respect freedom of conscience, and I think Anne has written a very honest book, actually. I must say I commend it for that. Um, and she uh, focuses on a very interesting aspect, which is life can be the importance that we give to it, of course, that is absolutely so. And we do take human life. My God, we've killed enough people in Iraq to, 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 to admit that we killed human beings. Uh, there is a just war, but nevertheless, uh, we, we certainly do kill. Um, and of course, sometimes it can be in the perception of the mother, the woman. Wonderful piece in The Guardian uh, in May this year by a woman called Lee Cowden. Tremendous struggle, a lot of difficulties with the IVF. She was told she could never have a baby, she couldn't, was told, and she went through a lot of bad IVF uh, treatment and everything like that. But she finally, she finally, finally conceived. And here she says, when I saw the beating heart at seven weeks, that was, to me, the most transformative moment of my life. And I think, you know, there you have the maternal instinct coming forward. I don't like this idea either that the fetus and the mother are somehow at war. They're adversaries. It's either one or the other. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's one thing for Mary for a woman to come to that. It's one thing, Mary, for a woman to come to that realization. Surely it's quite a different thing for the law of the land to tell her that she must. John, we're talking about the moral case for abortion today. We're not talking about the legal case for abortion. Uh, and, uh, and this is, uh, the, uh, so, so, I mean, that's what the exam question is, I believe. Okay. Ellie, <laughs> Ellie um, should, you know, women be held responsible for the decision-making that they have? Um, I'm sure you don't believe that pregnancy should be a, a punishment for women who make uh, bad decisions or different decisions. Or six gin and tonics. Well, on the drinking thing, I mean, it's true, you know, people have sex when they've uh, been drinking and women get pregnant when they've been drinking. Um, I really think, don't think that uh, women decide to have abortions when they're completely smashed. 
Um, and I don't think that that decision... Would um, be legitimate consent. I mean, it's just, you know, anyway, because what we're talking about is decision-making about abortion and, and the moral issues there. Um, I also think in terms of having a substantive discussion about the moral issues with abortion decision-making and that are posed, um, I don't think the fact that people have different perceptions of ultrasound scans is particularly relevant. I thought they were really boring and I mean I you know my my I, I had kids but you know I wasn't that taken with them uh, when my kids <laughs> no, I mean with the kids are fine but I mean with the ultrasound um you know and I mean there's all sorts of versions of this when my kids are born I mean the, the people in the hospital kept going on at my husband about how moved he's supposed to be and cutting the cord and all that and he said to me well it was like watching the back end of a farmyard because <laughs> um, it's you know so I, I just don't know where you go with that. And if you start with the things that people say about their individual experiences of getting pregnant, having kids, you know, this, that and the other. And I think it's one of the real strengths of Anne's book is that basically she says, look, we've got to think more deeply. We've got to go beyond this. We've got to start, stop mm. talking about things that are, you know, superficially mobilised in lots of debates and try and think much more substantially about, about the moral questions. Um, and I think that's right. Anyway, I'm, I'll stop there. Okay. Yes, this lady up here at the front. Well, Mary, I think you're right. You have got the soft power today. But I think that's a real shame, actually. I think that's a, a tremendous pity. Um, I think the reason you've got soft power is because uh, there's a very important moral ideal which, in freedom. And I think the fact that you have... Uh, the greater softer power is really a consequence of the fact that I think there's probably quite a low validation of freedom generally throughout society today. Manifest, as you mentioned at the beginning, one aspect is the, the kind of disdain for freedom of speech and free thought. So, and I, I think the thing of, um, you know, I, I'm quite taken and I can quite understand the idea of ambivalence, you know, about being pregnant and the maternal instinct and all that. But you see, that also does coexist with reason. And I think the point about reason is that that's the kind of faculty through which we have been able to kind of recognise, work through, think about, weigh up the pros and cons, and eventually come to a judgment. And I think that what, what um, you know, and that's the kind of, if you like, the big abstract philosophical things that Ellie was talking about, the camp, the mill, and, the, and, the, and Sartre. And what Anne's brilliantly done is sort of bring that in, but combine it with something that they didn't have, which was a sociological consciousness, to be able to apply those abstract generalised theories into quite specific, concrete situations of today in people's lives and the situations that we find in. And, and that's what I think is so brilliant. So more freedom acknowledge ambivalence, that's fine, but let everybody use their reason to decide, and I'll put into Hallmark for some um, happy abortion day cards. Uh, thanks to all three speakers. Uh, I might be echoing, actually, the question before me, but I thought that you're right, Mary, to say that there's a sort of squeamishness and a bit of a yuck response in people's minds when often they think of abortion, and especially late-term abortion. But... I suppose a, a fairly commonly move, a fairly commonly made move in philosophy and in rational argument is to say, well, that might well be the aesthetic gut response, but we don't have to credit that rationally. Uh, and so I'm, you're right insofar as there might be a bit of a consensus that this is a horrible thing to discuss and a bit sensitive. 
But I'm wondering how far that actually takes us in providing a compelling rational argument against uh, the moral legitimacy of abortion. The thing is that because it's a very complicated subject, it's very hard to, in the real situation, apply totally rational. Sometimes we do have um, uh, feeling responses to human situations, and to have a feeling response is perfectly legitimate. I watched abortions up to 24 weeks, and I thought uh, when I saw a dismembered fetus at 23 weeks, I just stood there, and the sluice nurse had to put the fetal parts together again, and I thought, you know, what a piece of work a man or a woman is. This is a human being. This is our species, and that is the reflective action that you, response that you do have. And there's nothing to be ashamed of in responding as a human being, just like, if you like, uh, where you see refugees uh, drowning in, in the Mediterranean, a rational response may be, look, they should go back to their own countries, this is a complete fuck up the way the whole thing has happened. But it's perfectly human to respond and say, this is a human being, we must save this human being. So I think we should factor in, uh, there, there sometimes, Debate can be over-intellectual in the sense that it doesn't factor in the human response which is in our hearts and indeed in our DNA. Okay. No, I think uh, you're on you a know. completely sticky wicket because the substance of that argument is exactly the same one that people use to tell people that they shouldn't be able to speak in public. You know, I don't like what you're saying. It's upsetting me. It's making me feel very emotional. And the thing is, is that the bottom line here, as far as I'm concerned, is that you cannot deny other people liberty because you don't like it, because it makes you feel upset. And it's no different mm. whether it's abortion or whether it's free speech. I think the two are substantively exactly the same morally. OK, in the centre here. Thanks, I'm Ella Whelan from Spiked. And I'm actually really glad that the topic of feelings has come up because um, something that I've heard lots of people, and I have argued in the past, is that for uh, pro-choice is that the fetus only becomes a baby when the woman wants it. And so it's really talking about desire. And that is obviously a feeling. And so to put to you, Mary, um, it's all very well um, talking about the idea of maternal instinct. And that's obviously a huge part of this conversation and shouldn't be downplayed. But what happens when that desire, that feeling, uh, is flipped the other way and the woman feels that she doesn't want the pregnancy? And so to kind of to say that the importance of feeling, the importance of, yes, making the soft argument, as you've called it, winning the hearts and minds, what about when that feeling, that desire, isn't within the woman who is actually pregnant? And surely that, can you see how that argument can be flipped the other way? And surely it's more problematic for the feeling and the desire of the woman to be undermined than those who are criticising her who aren't pregnant. Would you like well, to respond briefly it's, to that, it's Mary? Just, uh, this, this is a very complex area, and of course pe people are very subjective about it. Actually, um, uh, I think that the maternal instinct very often kicks in halfway through, through a pregnancy. That's my anecdotal experience anyway. And we have a lot of cases of women who uh, placed their children for adoption uh, 40 and 50 years ago uh, because they definitely didn't want a baby and they didn't want a child and they weren't, in a, but they, were, they weren't easily able to access abortion. And you've got these very, very moving cases of people being reconciled, birth mothers being, recon, be, 
being uh, not only reconciled but finding they their 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 birth children and being incredibly thrilled and pleased. Are you and answering absolutely the question? Wonderful. Yes, I'm just saying okay. feelings can change. That's all. Feelings can change. Yeah. Okay. So can feelings towards the the the, the born or the unborn. Mm-hmm. Okay. This gentleman here. Hi, I'd like to draw back the discussion to um, what Anne said in her opening remarks. Um, you talk about you know, the, the fetus's life as being human, even though the fetus is within the mother's womb. And then you go on to talk about if, um, if we ask the woman to choose for the fetus's life over her own bodily integrity, that somehow, to use your words, gives the fetus a, quote, higher moral status. So I just want to zoom in on this point a bit, because I think there's a few things that need to be unpacked. Um, one is the question of, of dependence. I think we, sometimes when we talk about abortion and a woman's uh, rights over her own body, we're sometimes too carried away, or there's a risk of being carried away by the fact that the fetus is in the woman's body. But actually everything we do, and all the ways in which, or most of the ways in which we're dependent on other people, we're all embodied people. For me, if I have to take care of my elderly parents who are sick and suffering from dementia, that's also a bodily movement to go to the house or to stay in the house for that matter. So I just wonder if what you're basing this idea of a higher moral status on, because actually when we think about afterbirth dependence, we actually, it's not about higher or lower moral status, but when we say that if somebody, a patient, an elderly parent, is dependent on somebody else, that doesn't lessen their status, but in fact increases the duties and responsibilities of the carer. That's why jurisdictions have culpable manslaughter, for example. So you speak eloquently against utilitarianism, but I wonder if you're actually going to, uh, giving ground to utilitarian arguments by talking about the fetus as not having a sense of life of its own, which I'm not actually very sure, because the fetus feels, the fetus feels pain, and more than just pain, I think it is almost no different from a baby that's just been born in terms of its sense of its own life. If I may just make a final point also, you talk about what's unique about us, but actually what's unique, one of the things that's unique about us is also our ability to relate with other people, not just about valuing our own lives, but valuing other people's lives, and that, I think that ties in with what Mary says about the maternal instinct. Thank, Thank you. you. Anne, would you like to briefly respond to that? Yeah, yeah just, just briefly. I mean, I'd say the point that you make, the no man is an island, and so on, we exist in a whole number of social dependencies. But I think that the social dependencies that we have and the social obligations are utterly and completely different from basically what we're talking about with pregnancy, which is an entire physical dependency. And what you're talking about when you talk about your choice or your decisions to care for your parents and so on is that's a decision that you make, and it's one that we might give you brownie points for making what we think is the right decision, but it's nevertheless something that you're in a position to decide. Now, what I'm suggesting in respect of abortion is that we turn the moral lens round, actually, and we turn the moral lens first and foremost upon the woman who, who is the entire thinking, living, conscious, sentient being in this, and we think about what compelling her to continue her pregnancy does in terms of her. And when you take away the decisions about the pregnancy, what it takes away from her in terms of the responsibilities and the rights that she has to make decisions in relation, not to her social circumstances, but in fact to her 
own body. And I think that that location element, the geography, if you like, is something that is quite important in this particular case because you cannot impact on the embryo, the fetus, the unborn child without impacting on that woman's body, and that's what makes it different. Can I just say that I'd like to throw the argument about the fetus experience back out to the audience because I know that there are some people who are more qualified than I am looking at a person in particular simply about (laughs) this whole notion because I don't think that even newborn babies know that they are independent and different from the woman who's carrying them. Put your hand there Stuart will you? (laughs) He'd had his hand up. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't really want to talk about that, though. You can talk about other stuff as well. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, just very briefly, I mean, the, the issue of what it is that you experience, um, even the most basic of experiences are grounded in some form of knowledge. And knowledge is something that comes to you through a process of development. And that development occurs in relation to other people in a relationship that you just don't have when you're stuck inside a place that's very dark and very um, wet and very quiet. You know, it just doesn't happen in there. So I think um, to draw an equivalence between fetal experience and the experience of, say, an 18-month-old infant is making a very serious error and one that we just shouldn't do. But I did want to draw out a couple of tensions in the discussion. One one tension is between um, abortion as a medical thing and abortion as a social thing. So I, I think it's obviously the case that there are some abortions where it's very necessary for the woman's health and the recent example of that being the Savita case where Savita um, died as a consequence of septic infection because she was denied the abortion that she needed for her health and her life. And I think Mary is right that those kinds of events have pushed pro-choice issues. I mean it has changed the landscape I think in Southern Ireland as a consequence of that. But my, my question is, is how far does this go because Pregnancy is a physiological medical thing, if you think about it. A lot of things that are happening that are kind of medical, and we can kind of think of an unwanted abortion as a disease that needs to be treated medically. Um, And we can maybe ignore the fact that most abortions are sought for social reasons, just because the woman doesn't want one. I don't want to put it in that way. But because the woman makes the decision that she does not want to be pregnant and have a child at this point in her life. And I know, Anne, I think you are more opposed to the medicalisation of abortion. I just want to explore that tension a little bit bit more. And then the second tension, which has also been raised, um, is between the question of rationality and feeling. And, And very much... I am in the tradition of, you know, human beings are rational, reasonable agents who have autonomy, who can make proper decisions about um, their lives. But I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that it has to feel right as well. And I know, Anne, again, in your book, I think you draw out the fact that an abortion that was post-30 weeks, that was called for for no particular reason, where everything's going well and the, the, the unborn is healthy, you wouldn't find a doctor who would perform that. And and I think you're right, and I think the reason is because it doesn't feel right, but then how do you square that with this broader idea that essentially it's always the woman who makes the decision about whether or not this is right for her in the context of her life? Why does it matter that it's post-30 weeks? Um, Can I just say in answer to this young man, I I repeat that consciousness about the unborn has been hugely enlarged by 
modern technology, by the amazing advances in embryology and fetology over the last 40 years. The glamorous area now is fertility. Abortion is not a glamorous area for any doctor to go into. Uh, but, and we've learned so much about this, uh, what is actually happening to the developing fetus, and it has enlarged our sense of imagination. Ian McEwan's new novel, uh, Nutshell, is a best-selling novel. It's entirely told from the point of view of the unborn or the, the fetus. And it's just very interesting that here would be a North London Guardian Easter writer who I'm sure would be very right on about the right to choose, but that he's decided to tell the story that way. And that's all part of the soft power, which is embedded in our our DNA to take care of the unborn. That is what we want to do by, by instinct. And I think that that is being enlarged all the time by, by technology. And even if the fetus doesn't have any understanding of what's happening, we all were fetuses once. So we have some retrospective understanding of what was going on okay. during those nine months. Thank you. This gentleman in the check shirt. Um, I want to go back to one of the Points, the main points Anne made in her introduction about the novelty of her arguments, and I think, if I've got it right, it's on. Um, whether you've changed your mind on this, I got the impression you were saying this is kind of a change of heart slightly. There's this whole thing about awe, and the awe for the, the early human uh, embryo. Um, and you mentioned Dworkin on this. Now, my recollection of reading Dworkin many years ago is that he makes kind of two arguments. One is a kind of personal investment in something, so I really love my cat, you know, and if anyone harms my cat, I'm going to be really angry with them, okay? My cat. I spent a lot of time investing in my cat. Um, but then he also makes a kind of more general point, which is that basically somehow the cosmos or nature is invested in a 300-year-old tree, or evolution is somehow invested in creating the wonder which is the human embryo. And, the, and he has awe for that kind of thing. Now, that struck me as bonkers, really. Um, Mainly because, to draw on other existential scientists, not Sartre, but someone like Jack Moon and all these people, they made a very sharp distinction between what humans valued, humanism, and nature, which just was, just brute facts, 13.8 billion years old, evolution doesn't care about anything, it's destructive, like Darwin, etc. Now, are you kind of going for this awe for some natural process? Or have I misunderstood you in your introduction? I think this whole discussion about maternal instincts is, is, is very misleading. I, I think it's getting away from the crucial issues. A maternal instinct is an instinct. We're not talking about instincts. We suppress all kinds of instincts through our rational reasoning. So I think it really is a, a side issue. I think the, the critical thing, as I understand from Anne's um, argument, is that when you are deciding on an abortion, you're deciding on the moral question of who has moral superiority, if you like. Who stands morally superior to the other? The woman or the fetus? And I think Anne's made a good argument that in fact the fetus is inferior in this respect to a rational, sentient woman. Now, not all women are rational and sentient. You may get disabled people, you may get mentally retarded people. The question is that this is a social question. It's decided now in the 21st century on the basis of our understanding of moral reasoning, 
on the basis of that whole inheritance we have of Kant and Sartre and so forth. We are deciding on the moral superiority. What distinguishes human beings at the level of society from the fetus? I just have a question really for Anne. One of the interesting things you're talking about is, is the moral status of a fetus versus the moral status of a newborn. In some ways, there's not a lot of difference between them in the sense that a newborn does not have a biography, it's not a biographical, it doesn't have a personality, and uh, it strikes me that it's less of a disaster, which sounds very heartless, and I don't mean it this way, but if somebody under the age of three months dies, it's a different thing than, say, a 14-year-old child dying, uh, because there is a whole element of the person dying, of the person with their individuality and everything else. As I recall with my own children, under the age of three months, they learn to digest and not a lot else. That's cry, digest, not much else, not, not a lot of personality. And it strikes me that it's the wickedness, uh, it, the, the sort of moral status aspect is that in some ways it, it is not necessary to destroy the life of a newborn child, whereas it occasionally is necessary um, when it's versus the woman. Uh, versus the interests of the woman, versus the interests of the child, and you choose the woman. Whereas what strikes me is the wickedness of the act of, of purposeless destruction that, that is something that horrifies us. It's, it's, it's when it's necessary, uh, then we can, we can choose. And it strikes me that it's necessary occasionally to take the interests of a woman at whatever stage of her pregnancy versus um, the, the fetus. Whereas with a newborn, it is never necessary uh, to end the life of a newborn. Okay, thank you very much. We're going to give the panelists just an opportunity to um, sum up, to respond back. You've got a minute or two. Can I start with you, Ellie? Right, so this, um, I suppose, I think it's been a great discussion. It's been very interesting, but there's obviously so much more to keep talking about. Um, and if anything we can do to conclude from this, it's to thank Anne for writing a book that's provoked this discussion. Um, there's two points in her book which are raised in different plates, which places which this discussion has really emphasised to me as ones which are important. The first is the uh, bankruptcy of what I would describe as feminist ethics, which is really what you gave a very good articulation of in the middle there. Um, so what you were actually doing um, was outlining some of the um, central components of feminist claims. Um, against a liberal view of autonomy. That's what you were doing. I think it's completely wrong, and the wrongness of it, to me, is very, very clear in this discussion, where people base their argument on the idea that being pregnant is no different to not being pregnant. Now, I just think that's ridiculous. I think it's a ridiculous starting point for any discussion about ethics. To me, there is a world of difference between being pregnant and not being pregnant, and therefore between the moral issues raised by um, the obligations that a person owes to other people and the obligations uh, that a pregnant woman owes to her fetus or to her embryo are of a completely different order. And to efface that, which I think is what feminist ethics does, um, I think is highly problematic. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't get time to pursue it, but I think it's one of the most important issues that's raised in, in Anne's book, where this might lead people who are pro-choice in relation to feminist thinking. 
The second thing um, I would take away from this and advise anybody is never listen to anything or never take seriously anything anybody who is pro-life says about science and what they think science has shown us, what they think the brilliance of science is, um, how they think science is advanced, because this is not an accurate account of science. Um, it's an argument that's being mobilised for particular ends. Um, and I think Mary's comments about um, how much more we know about all these things that we understand about the embryo um, are highly overstated in relation to scientific advances and actually speak much more to um, the now increasingly manifest moral bankruptcy um, of pro-life people who all the time prefer to um, pretend that science is going to uh, make their arguments for them um, rather than uh, make their arguments for themselves. Well, Catholics are usually uh, um, accused, uh, along with Hillary Clinton's made, as being backward and stupid, you know, so, uh, and that, uh, you know, because they base all their arguments on what St. Augustine said in the 6th century. Well, I don't base my arguments on what St. Augustine said or St. Thomas Aquinas said. I base my arguments on what I've seen with my own eyes and what I have what I perceive from the tremendous advances in fetology and embryology. Nobody could possibly deny that since the first uh, uh, test tube baby in 1978 that we haven't made enormous discoveries about maternal care, uh, fetal care, neonatal care, and indeed uh, contraception as well. And I think these things do, I mean, the, the argument changes because we do evolve, we do have new information, and we should take it on board. Why should we reject it? It's ridiculous. Uh, the, just to the lady who said that a woman has a superior status to the fetus, and I think that's uh, self-evident that she, the, the, in, in one sense. But I think the moral question is, if we deliberately, we have to put aside rape in this question because that's a different argument, but if we are responsible for procreating life, if we've brought our sense of responsibility, our sense of autonomy, our sense of free will, and our sense of sexual desire to procreating a life, do we have any responsibility in the way we regard that life? And I think... That is the nub of the moral question, and I think Anne Furedi has touched on it with great honesty. Okay, thank you very much, Mary. Anne? Okay, briefly, and please read the book and invite me to come and talk to you if you have a college or a student group or what have you, because I would love the opportunity. I'm just going to say, right, I'm going to be the only person on the platform possibly with the exception of John, who will say, right, I'll put in a good word for St. Augustine and the Thomastic <laughs> tradition. <laughs> because actually, when you then look at the rest of Western philosophy, it rests on that. Mm -hmm. And so I do want to put in a claim for looking back at some of the, these ideas. And I want to pick up on the point that Ellie raised about reason. Because I think it's important to understand, and I think that... The argument, in fact, it's interesting because it knits together some of the points about the, the feminist critique of autonomy, is that they basically say that autonomy is an elitist construct, and they go back to Mill, and they make the point that it's an elitist and a masculinist construct because it relies on reason in decision-making and that that relies on a particular intellectual foundation. And I don't think that's true, you know, when you actually... Well, 
it relies on an intellectual foundation to a point. But actually, when you look at it and you take the description that you had of what Mill's saying, he doesn't actually set the bar that high. You know, he talks about the fact that we are able to make decisions based on our observations, our understanding of what's going on around us. It's not a kind of a bookish reason. It's actually an ability, when he talks about reason, to assess and assimilate and weigh up in our minds. Reason, in the sense of decide that this is a better decision than another. And that's what I would say marks us out from any other being on this planet, that actually pretty much the dumbest person is still able to make a more weighed up decision than my cat, even though, as many of you will know, I'm very into my cat. I know that we're short of time, but I do want to make this point on the 30-week abortion and the personal and the medical, because here we come into it, right? To my mind, you know, making a decision that I do not want to continue this pregnancy is a personal decision which somebody should be able to make in relation to themselves. The problem with abortion is that it relies on somebody else, actually, at that stage in pregnancy to intervene and deliver it. And so that actually involves two people's reasoning and two people's conscience because it relies on the person and it relies on the doctor. If you're doing it humanely, you can, of course, say, oh, a woman can always have an abortion by herself. She can stick up that knitting needle, throw herself down the stairs if she wants to push herself to the limit. But I don't really think that that's the way that you would be thinking about it. So it involves two people in that. And then just finally, John, John Gillett and I have been having this discussion for about 25 years, and I haven't seen you for about 10, so it's lovely to have you in the audience asking me this question. I'm a bit of an incurable romantic. I don't think I've changed. And when I say that I stand in awe of the embryo as the sense of all of evolution has led to this, I really do. I'm not asking that anybody else should, but I think that quite a lot of people do. But that doesn't mean that I privilege that over somebody's right to make a decision about their life. And I think this is what I'm trying to do, is pull in all of these aspects of it and see where it goes. Thank you. Thank you.